When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. This episode brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. This is At The Turn. It's time for discussion and interviews about the world of golf you won't hear anywhere else. Here are your hosts, Nick Heidelberger and Joe Simons. Hello, hello. Welcome into another episode of At The Turn. Joe and Nick with you to discuss Phil, an unauthorized biography. That's a rip-roaring biography of golf's most colorful superstar by Alan Shipnuck. Nick, you ready to do this? Yeah, this was a this was a great read, and, and I gotta say thank you for um, coercing Simon and Schuster into uh, I tricked them. sending us sending us these books so we could do this podcast. So thank you, and and uh, this yeah, it's good stuff. So we're gonna start with our five takeaways from the book, and then have some general conversation, and of course our Mad Golfer of the Week and Nick Rules. Nick, do you want to start with your first takeaway? Yeah, my the first thing that like really set the tone for who Phil Mickelson is, is just this little, and I forget even who the anecdote came from, but um, if you ask Phil what time it is, he'll, he'll teach you how to build a watch. And, and, and that just perfectly frames for me his mindset of not only do I have the information that you need, but like I I could, I can invent the information that you need. Like not, here's not just the time, but like <laughs> – Funny thing, here's how a watch works. <laughs> Let me show you how smart I am. Yeah, that'll get me into my theme. The first one was, is Phil a phony or genuine? And I think the book does a really good job of saying yes to that question. He's mm-hmm. not either. Right. He is full of shit, but there is some method to his madness. And throughout the book, they really illustrate 
the perception that you probably have of him is true. And a lot of the stories color that in. Did you find that fake versus real was a big theme throughout the book? Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly how it kind of ping pongs. And I think that really once you take it all in, it just encompasses like he's so fake, he's real. It's like Las Vegas. Like it's nothing about it is is authentic except for the fact that it's the only place like it in the world. And I think that's kind of how Phil is. Like he everything he does is probably for his own self-fulfilling motives, but it's still at the end of the day, that's genuinely him in some weird way. Yeah, like there was some stories about how Phil would act one way in front of fans and then act a different way when he was in private showing the duplicity. But someone made a great point that to the person he's interacting with, that interaction is real. And so because they're not seeing the other side of it, it is in fact genuine, even though he's also being phony in the same breath. Exactly. It's glorious. I I thought the book started out in a rip-roaring way. The first chapter is just quotes. That's all it is. It's just quotes from people talking about Phil Mickelson. And I have to read you this passage just because I've repeated it to like four people since I've read it. So here we go. I wasn't even in the room when it happened, but I've heard this story so many times it's become my favorite, says Paul McGinley. The 2016 Ryder Cup was right after the Olympics, and Matt Kuchar, who was a bit of a court jester, wore his bronze medal around everywhere he went just to wind people up. He was slagging Phil and Tiger, saying they'd won all these majors, but they didn't have an Olympic medal. So for one of their team meetings, the American bring in the swimmer Michael Phelps to have a chat. Of course, he has 21 or 22 gold medals or whatever it is. Phelps gets a standing ovation, high-fiving everyone. And just before he's about to address the players, Phil speaks up. Hey, coach, why don't you show him your bronze medal? He probably hasn't seen one before. <laughs> I love it that Phil That's just waits to needle him. It, it, it's, it, it's such a good story. But to the fake versus phony, just another quick one right here. In 2003, the U.S. Open was at Olympia Fields, and Phil went to an early t- went early to see the course. This is from a former writer at Golf Week. Him and Bones go to a little breakfast place in Illinois. He leaves the waitress a $100 bill for a small check, but that's not the point of the story. A woman who works at an eye care center across the street comes in, recognizes Phil, and asks for an autograph. He politely says he'll do it when he's done eating. She can't wait around. She has to get back to work. After breakfast, Phil go- goes to Olympia Fields. After playing 18 holes, he drives back across town to the eye care place to sign autographs for this woman and all the other people at her office. He didn't have to do that. No. And there's a lot of those. There's a lot of those like where Phil doesn't have to do these things, but he does. Charitable work, all these organizations that he builds up. And even though the book, I think, mostly makes Phil seem like a jackass, there's enough of those kinds of stories in there to make you think that he's at least somewhat genuine in his actions. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I'm going to skip to my my fifth and biggest takeaway. Mm. Uh, just skipping straight ahead. But I think my biggest takeaway is that if you you evaluate all these – all of kind of the good that he's done, whatever the motives – 
and compare it with all of the bad and all of the, the times he's kind of been an asshole to people and rub people the wrong way. And like, think about the impact that gets made on people. Like he, he might've pissed some people off or like, you know, put them in a bad mood for a little while, but like the good that he's done, like helping the children get their school supplies who never would have had school supplies, the wounded warriors who, who it not only changed their life, but it inspired them to then go and, and help others like in their situations, you know, down the road, um, like the, the good he's done has far outweighed the the bad and, and the negatives and the, you know, the, the needling and the, you know, just kind of being a jerk to people. Yeah. That's, that was kind of like my main, not my main takeaway, but like overall, because you're kind of weighing like, okay, he did this, but he did that. Like, is he, he, you know, he was really kind to this person and he was really jerk to that person. And it's like, okay, but. Like, let's look at the impact he's actually made. And like, sure, there's a lot of people who probably hate him, probably for good reason. But like a lot of people who he's made a difference that they could not have made themselves. Yeah, that's exactly right. And again, it just goes back to that fake versus phony. He's he's both of those things. This is towards the end of the book, but they get into his split with Bones, his longtime caddy, and why that actually happened. Did you know any of that stuff? Because I, I didn't. No, no, I, I didn't either. You know, I mean, I, I figured at the time there was more to the story than those those nice press releases were, were saying. But the money stuff, I had no idea. Yeah. So there was a lot of money that Phil owed Bones and it sort of slowly built over time. I think it was related to FedEx Cup bonuses. And then there was a larger anecdote, which seems to be more of the issue that it is tradition for a caddy to take the flag of the 18th hole of the tournament that their player wins. And Phil kept all his flags, kept all of his flags. Bones didn't get any of them. And eventually after the split, Phil overnights these flags to Bones, but writes his signature so big over the flag to diminish the value of them. And that is a great, what a dick story about Phil Mickelson. That just doesn't make sense to me. Like, like it's hard to put into perspective, like why, like of all, of all like the almost a million dollars that the flags are like this big point of contention. Like you and I don't really get it, but like if it's a caddy thing and it's a point of pride for the caddies, you know, that's something beyond what we can really, you know, fathom. I would, I would take the, you know, close to a million dollars and, and, and be cool with it. And then that Phil would like, it sounds like he was purposefully withholding these because he, because of the way he like signed them and, and basically, which is strange that a massive Phil Mickelson autograph like devalues something. I don't know. It's just a, it's just a weird, it's just a weird like middle finger to, to somebody who you had such a relationship with for a long time. And then Bones, like after like being so angry about not getting these and then finally getting them, he, he will never display them now and he's just going to sell them on eBay in like five years. I don't know. It's just a strange like, thing and also the money like bones is your guy just why would you not pay him what you have agreed to pay him or was there like an unspoken thing where bones assumed he was going to get x and and phil didn't i mean it's like it's just weird that this person who is this close to you and your family for 25 years for like this hall of fame career you would not be paying and he gets a percentage of your salary so you literally should have like 
10 times what you owe him. I just, it's just a strange, it's just a strange falling out. And Shipnuck also insinuates that Phil may have kept the flags as part of his kid's inheritance, pointing out that Phil really does not like the way his signature looks on golf balls because it's unreadable. But then in like his, I'm assuming massive safe in one of his seven homes, he has golf balls with a perfect Phil Mickelson signature on them as part of his kid's inheritance, saying that they'll be able to get a lot of money for those someday, which I assume to be true. It's also, it also speaks to his ego to be like, yeah. oh, you know what, kids? Like, I, I'm not going to start a college fund for you. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to sign a bunch of golf balls, and those are going to be worth more than anything someday. Hell yeah. It's, it's awesome. What's your next one? Um, I got a couple that I just really found entertaining. Mm-hmm. Um, going to Vegas with the boys. <laughs> When's the last time you told all your friends, hey, guys, get your bets in before me because when I put my money down, it's going to move the line. Yeah. I love gambling, that. Gambling was one of my takeaways, too. Um, that money game that he played against that mini tour dude who was trying to make it. And mm-hmm. Phil, I mean, I'm I'm not going to do the story justice, read the book, but essentially Phil is just shit talking like constant. And then when the biggest shot of the day comes up, Phil stuffs it to inches and takes all the money and humiliates everybody. I do. I do want to hit this story from a tour event. So obviously Phil's an Arizona guy. He's good buddies with Gary McCord, the former broadcaster of CBS And here's this short passage. I was in the tower, says former CBS announcer Gary McCord. Every time Phil got to my hole, Bones would look up at me and I would flash the odds. If Phil had a 15-footer, I'd flash three fingers, which meant the odds were three to one. If he was 60 feet, I'd give him two to one on a two-putt. Bones would go down and whisper in his ear and Phil would look up at me and shake his head yes or no. I can't tell you how many wadded up 20s I threw out of the tower until the tour found out about it, and I got word through CBS I was no longer allowed to gamble with Phil while up in the tower. What a lunatic. That is that is incredible. Like, both of, not just one of these people, both of these people are in the middle of a job that millions of people are watching, critiquing, and requires all of your focus. And you're sitting here gauging what odds you're going to give to Phil that he's going to one putt or two putt this putt and then communicating that to Bones, Bones relaying that to Phil, Phil taking or leaving it, tossing 20s out the out the tower. Like, how how are either of you, or all three of you, if you include Bones in that, like executing this, this highly sophisticated yet very elementary gambling ring? Well, and it's not even the money. It's 20s to these yeah. guys. I mean, to McC- it obviously means more to, to, to McCord than Phil to lose the bet. But for Phil, it's all about the action. They tell another story about Phil flying cross country for a money game on a private jet. The cost of the flight was going to cost more than he could actually potentially win at the money game across the country. But the dude wanted the action so much yeah. that he had to do it. I remember the... They, they talk about Phil being very vocal about his Super Bowl bet that he made in the 2000 Baltimore Ravens. I remember him going on the Dan Patrick show bragging about that at the time. And even as a 15-year-old, I remember thinking it's really weird that a professional athlete was bragging about cashing in a $40,000 ticket. Because especially back then, the stigma associated gambling was so much higher than it is today. But even today, that would be weird. Yeah. 
I love too that he always needs to have some sort of advantage and some sort of like insider information. I forget who it was. He was playing somebody in the last few holes. He said, let's trade clubs. Phil's, Phil playing right-handed, the other person playing left-handed. And then it's like, oh, well, Phil naturally is right-handed. So he had an advantage. And then uh, the the like the crazy, insane difficulty bunker shot where he like put this money on the guys he's playing with that he's going to execute this crazy bunker shot. And they're like, you have no chance. And then it turns out he'd been rehearsing it for like four hours in the morning, like shooting a commercial. And so he clearly had all this practice. Like anytime he feels like he can get an advantage, he's going to like use that to his advantage and, and try to like play somebody. And, um, I don't know. I don't know. Did you have insider trading on your list? Because that kind of naturally leads into that whole situation. I don't go ahead. Well, um, he, of course, in, in his very Phil way escapes from all wrongdoing legally and officially of this insider trading ring. But I think Shipnuck put that towards the end of the book intentionally to like, by, by this point, we know Phil well enough to like not believe whatsoever that he didn't have insider information that it wasn't you know a complete by the book insider trading situation um because that's just how phil operates if he can get an edge over the competition and use it to an advantage like that that's his mo yeah that that brings me to one of the big thoughts that i had when wrapping up this book so this was published in may of this year and a lot of the language around live golf almost seems quaint because it's all so speculative. And now it has become such a thing so quickly that I'm sure when the paperback version comes out, Shipnuck will probably write a few more chapters. And who knows, maybe those will date really, really quickly. But reading this book, I really changed my opinion about how Phil is going to be remembered. Phil has this way of, like you said, wiggling out of a lot of sticky situations insider trading you know there's there's rumors about him and amy cheating on each other all the time all these really illicit things and phil always makes them go away somehow i think live is a little bit different but we live in a very forgiving and understanding and a short-term memory society i would be surprised if people think of phil and live golf rather than the bulk of his time in the limelight, which is being a professional golfer in the PGA tour. Cause how much longer is he going to play on live five years? Maybe. No, I don't even, I think a couple of years and he'll, yeah. he'll be more in a, in a leadership role right. with live. And I, I think honestly he'll, he'll spin the live stuff, which he already is doing as like, look what I did for the PGA tour. Like I was the sacrificial lamb. I had to leave and blow up the tour and now the tour is way better. And, it looks it looks pretty clear that the PJ Tour is going to be better in five years than it was last year before Liv was was a serious threat. And Phil is of course going to take the credit for that, whether he earned it, deserves it or not. That that's a, for another podcast. But he will try to incorporate that into his legacy rather than say like you know rather than being you know Phil's twilight just in, in Liv. I, I don't think we're going to see a lot of Phil live golf highlights in the career reel. It's going to be everything he's already done. Not going to be playing too much more on live, but using that to shape what golf looks like for the next generation, which he will credit to his legacy. Yeah. And I mean, the guy hasn't broken par in a live event yet. So I don't think too many highlight reels are going to be made there. Right. But the last big takeaway that I had, Nick was 
Tiger. Tiger and Phil and their relationship. And just reinforcing how I thought Tiger probably felt about Phil. And they get into it a little bit in the Tiger book, but they certainly get into it a lot more here. There's many anecdotes. My favorite one is things Tiger did to Phil on purpose when they were paired together in a tournament. There's a list of these four things. Yes. Number one, Woods always tried to putt out first so the crowd would be moving to the next tee while Mickelson was putting. What an awesome move. Number two, he would linger behind the green and let Phil walk up to the tee box first so when Tiger arrived, his playing partner would have to listen to the roar. Number three, on holes when he was between three-water driver, Woods would choose less club so he could fart around in the fairway and make Mickelson watch him hit what would be an inevitably laser-like approach. Yeah, that's, that's all of these things are so confident and cocky from Tiger, which is should not be surprising at all, but it's just so awesome because he's he's like, that's what Phil tries to do to other people, but yeah. Tiger's the one guy who he can't do it to. Here's the last one. If Phil was amped up and moving fast, Tiger would slow his walk and pace of play. If Mickelson had a more leisurely vibe, Woods sped up his gait and routine. Either way, the goal was to try to upset his adversary's rhythm. And you're right. Phil did this stuff to other people. Tiger was really the only person that could rattle Phil because Phil knew that when they're both playing at their best, Tiger's going to be better. And Tiger just did this really cool stuff to mess with him. You have one more? Um, yeah. So Phil's relationship with the USGA mm. is just wild. Um, and it seemed like the USGA was extending the olive branch, trying to offer him the, the 2014 Bob Jones award. Phil rejected it in the U this is the, of all the Phil jabs in the book, my favorite needling is, is the USGA. Then after Phil rejects the award, giving it to Payne Stewart posthumously Payne Stewart, the person who famously stripped Phil Mickelson of his would be career grand slam at the time, just would have been maybe his first major, um, the 1999 U S open. That's, that's an epic, that's an epic clap back by the USGA. Yeah. Phil, Phil famously <laughs> has done a lot of things and made a lot of comments that the USGA did not like. And I thought that was a really good move by the USGA. I mean, because you can't get mad at giving Payne Stewart an award. He's a legend exactly. of the game. Yes. But it is it is obviously a needle to fill. Right. I want to remind you, I know we're, I don't know, 18 minutes into the pod right now. To please rate and review the podcast, give us five stars on whatever platform you listen on. And of course, go to Piper Golf, piper.golf. Use that promo code TURN10. Check out proud sponsor of the podcast. I think overall, it's a wonderful quick read. I read most of it in a day. I think if you have a five-hour flight, you could knock this thing out. For those that are interested in Phil, those that aren't, I think it's a good read for both those camps. My history coming in, just to kind of put some context on it, I've been watching golf since Tiger won the 96 US Amateur. And you had to pick one. You had to pick Tiger or Phil. And I was a Phil guy. I've been a, I've, I've been a Phil guy from the start. He's just more exciting There's more chaos. It means more when Phil wins because you expect Tiger to win and you expect Phil to screw up, even though he won 
44 times. I knew a lot of the stuff going in, like the blow-by-blows of the tournaments. I knew most of that stuff, but a lot of the context around it was great. Like you mentioned the 1999 US Open. The story of Amy having the, the complicated pregnancy and the birth of his daughter, that was a big thing that they talked about it on the telecast. Like Phil had the beeper on him and no matter the position he was in, if he had to go, he was going to go. And they talk about it in the book that if Payne Stewart misses that putt, Phil's got to go to a playoff and he would have had to have missed it for the birth of his first daughter, made sure everyone was healthy. So it all worked out in the end. But man, <laughs> they do such a great job of, of recounting that. So the point is, I, I found a lot of the stuff about his youth and coming up interesting. I found a lot of the Tiger stuff interesting. But in terms of like the blow by blow of the tournaments, you know, I understand why it's in there. It's a biography of the guy. Right. But I'm curious to get your reaction to that because you, you obviously weren't watching golf, you know, at the turn of the century. Or were you? No, I, I was I was probably more who this I don't know if this book is for the hardcore golf fan or just the casual sports fan, because that's what I was. I was I was a pretty good sports fan, but not a specific golf fan. So, like, I obviously knew who all these people were. Um, but the the blow by blow, I think I think Alan Shipnook did a good job with the with the blow by blow because it what it didn't consume the book. The book was more yeah. Phil's personality, but you you obviously have to include these like montages of of his triumphs in the in like he. I think he did a good job of 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 like summarizing them in a way that you could like just get the highlights, understand what's going on without it like consuming the book because you could write you know, a whole book on any single one of those tournaments if you got consumed with with the, you know, birdies and bogeys. Yeah, I think the prose was was fine. I think I think the parts of the book that Shipnut covered live were better than the ones that he didn't. I think he tried to be did you ever read Rick Riley's column in Sports Illustrated back in the day? It was the very back. He was very popular, but oftentimes he would use the easiest possible jokes the lowest hanging fruit. Mm. And I think Shipnuck did that probably a little too much early on in the book, but as he got into it and got to the parts where he was obviously covering those events live as a journalist and was able to put himself a little bit into the story, I found that part of the book more interesting. The information's great, but I think once we got like into the 99 US Open and from that point forward, I just kind of blew through the book. Mm -hmm. Very fast read. So I know you have a mad golfer. I do. I've, I've got. To, I'm just going to continue to go out of order because my my Nick rules here. Oh, is, please is um, kind of more relates to something we were just talking about, and I think it's I think it's a good time for it. All right. Well, this is Nick rules. It's brought to you by Matchstick Golf. Use promo code Turn Twenty at checkout. Theme song obviously still pending. Clearly. So we were just talking about Phil's relationship with the USGA. when you think Phil Mickelson and rules rule, rules um violations what, yeah. what comes to mind ah. wasn't that wasn't that long ago yeah. phil hung a 10 on the scoreboard yeah. at the 2018 us open at shinnecock um phil i mean comparable to mini golf hit a moving putt in the us open in 2018 um Rule 14-5 is simple. Playing a moving ball. A player must not make a stroke at his ball while it is moving. It's, it's that simple. 
Uh, the penalty for violating this is two strokes. A lot of people were calling for Phil to be DQ'd. Um, exerting influence on movement of, of ball or altering physical conditions. This is rule 1-2. A player must not take an action with the intent to influence the movement of a ball in play or alter physical conditions with the intent of affecting the playing of a hole. So he's violated this rule, clearly. Um, people were saying that there, there's a stipulation in the fine print of the rules that if if you're like basically being egregious and, and doing this, the committee can decide, like, get the hell out of our tournament. We're going to DQ you. And Phil claimed that because he was, he was hitting a moving putt to use – because he knew the rule to yeah. use the rule to his advantage yeah. because he thought he wouldn't be able to essentially four putt because he was going to two putt with the moving ball and the two stroke penalty. Um, so that's why he decided to do, to do it, which somehow exonerated him from being disqualified from this U S open, which after making a 10, I would just pack my bags and go home myself. Um, but you've got Phil hitting a moving ball at the U S open, the one major he he's never won six runner ups and, uh, that could potentially that's he, he's got a long highlight reel of us open infamy and and that's just another that's just another bit of that i'm fairly certain david fay who was the former executive director of the usga said on the broadcast at the time phil should be disqualified for that like because everyone in the broadcast is stunned because phil hits a moving ball in the national open like what the hell is going on here they're saying he should be dq'd as a matter of fact i'm fairly certain john daly hit a moving ball in a similar situation where he hit a couple chips and it kept rolling back to his feet. And eventually he just walked up to the ball as it was rolling back in his feet, whacked it and walked off the course. Yeah. I, I was going to say, I can see daily just scooping it and say, see you later. I'm pretty sure that's what he did. He just went right to the bar after that and just didn't really care anymore. Um, yeah. Classic example of Phil being a shit stain in the media scrub afterwards. He was like, you said sort of exonerated by it. And then after the tournament, he issued an apology and yada, yada, yada. It was not a problem anymore, but <laughs> not a great what, look. What a doofus. <laughs> Seriously. And that is Nick Rules brought to you by Matchstick Golf. Turn 20 at checkout. I'm going to save my Mad Golf for the week because I like it so much. I'm going to oh. save it. Okay. Yeah. I have a few questions great. for you. Sure. Do you feel any differently about Phil after reading this book? Yeah. Definitely. In what um, way? Well, just, I don't know. A handful of the skeletons are out of the closet. You know, I think there's before, even though, you know, he's phony with those lame thumbs ups. Like if that's all you're really seeing, then that's just kind of your perception of somebody. And so now, even though we knew all along, there was so much more to him than that. Now, a lot of the actual details are exposed. And I don't think I necessarily like him less or, have less respect for him. I just feel like you know you know him a little bit better, and you have a better sense of who he is, um, and it just changes your perception of him. I just give a better view of the whole three sixty degree scope of Phil Mickelson. Yeah, Phil Mickelson is Roy McAvoy and David Sims combined. He he is both of those guys. He has the recklessness on the course of a Roy McAvoy, which sets him up for greatness, and he also has the phoniness of David Sims who smiles for Jim Nance on the cameras and then goes behind the tent, lights up a heater and is like, Jesus Christ, these people are bothering me. Like, yeah, 
It's both those things. Exactly. What about you? Yeah, I I think it just reinforced everything I already thought about him and just colors in the lines a little bit more where I remember a lot of these tournaments and these incidents and it's really interesting to get people's perspective and, you know, Bones is really involved in the book and the different swing coaches. Like, I thought that was interesting because Phil switches, you know, to Butch Harmon away from Rick Smith, who was his longtime coach. And Butch Harmon is very honest in the book. He's like, I don't really think I did anything for him. I just think he needed a change from his original coach. And then when he fired Butch Harmon after like, you know, five, six years and a pretty successful relationship, Butch Harmon's like, yeah, I understand. He didn't really listen to me, had some success. And yeah, it was, it, it, it was fine. Yeah. So I, I really enjoyed that. This is, this is the ultimate question with Phil Mickelson. And I think the most interesting one, do you think he is more defined by his failures or successes? That is a good question. Um, I think to the hardcore golf fan like you and and me, his failures. So I, mean, I think you're always going to think, how the hell did Phil Mickelson not win the U.S. Open? I mean, like <laughs> multiple times. Honestly, like if if you ask me how many majors he has and how many U.S. Open runner-ups he has, I could I could answer both of them instantly. But it would take me about a half a second to answer how many U.S. Open runner-ups and like a second and a half for how many majors. It is the same answer. They're both six, which is pretty funny. Um, yeah, it's his failures. And I thought the book did a really good job at the last, maybe in the last chapter where they ask people, you know, the inner sanctum and the biggest people in golf for the last 30 years, coaches and players about Phil's style of play. And of course, Jack Nicholas has the opinion of, oh yeah, Phil played more conservative. He'd would have won a lot more. And Jack actually sent him a bit of a nasty gram after he won the PGA championship in 2021, where he's like, see, you kept the ball in play and look what happened. It's like, all right, Jack, <laughs> shut up, you old man. It's pretty Seriously. rude. Yeah. But I think the, the best take on it was, would Phil have put himself in a position to win six U.S. Opens if he was not the risk taker and psychopath and have short-term memory better than anyone except for maybe Tiger, would he even gotten to that point? Right. And that's that's what Phil's going to have to to use to sleep at night is like, I never – this is my personality. I have to lean into it or else I never would reach my potential in the first place. And I think at the end of the day, he's got a lot to be proud of. And, you know, if if, if the sacrifice for – for all that just crazy play is that you never won the U.S. Open, but you got six majors and set a lot of records. I mean, who's going to beat his record of oldest to win a major? Like that's that's going to stand for a long time, especially the way that I don't want to say like young guys these days, but like Tiger has set the tone that by the time you're into your fifties, like your body is just shot, like you're not competing anymore. So I, I it'll be interesting to see if and when. Uh, that gets broken because Phil will Phil will be very proud of that for a long time. Yeah, as he should be. You know, maybe someone like a DJ who's very athletic has an opportunity to do it, but motivation is certainly a question mark there. I think that Shipnuck did a good job of also putting his place in history. I think he had him as the 11th or 12th best golfer ever. Fine. Wow. What I mean, what a place to be. Like yeah. if you're Phil Mickelson, I'm sure you don't accept that as the reality because you probably view a lot of your failures and 
runner-ups and he has the second most runner-ups in majors behind Jack Nicholas. Like yeah. he, he probably views that apart as a part of his record. But yeah, this is a guy who had to make a bogey to get into a playoff in the 72nd hole of the US Open and he made a double. Uh th- this this is a guy who had a lot of opportunities and you know some of it he credits as bad luck, but I saw a quote the other day from Tom Watson's old caddy and he said I always loved when Tom Watson played with Greg Norman because Greg Norman would hit a drive right down the middle and it would land in a divot and he would bemoan his bad luck. Tom Watson would hit a drive right down the middle, land at a divot, and he turned to me and say, watch how close I'm going to hit this motherfucker. And I think that's the attitude that Phil has. Like, even though I think Phil feels a little bit snake bitten, I don't think he would ever like sit back and look at his career and think that. I think that Phil is that risk taker and it made him the great golfer that he is. It, it, it made him a champion. Phil Mickelson is the president of the Phil Mickelson fan club. Like, there's oh, yeah. no one who loves being Phil more than Phil. 100%. Nick, it is time for our Mad Golfer of the Week. It is brought to you by T-Box Coffee, a roast-to-order coffee brand in the heart of Southern California, packaged for the golfer who can shoot 68, the golfer who shoots 112, and every score in between. Let T-Box fuel your morning rounds. Hit the mic. Promo code TURN15 at checkout nick our mad golfer of the week i'm so proud of myself the mad golfer of the week is tiger woods oh all right here we go this is from the book a month after augusta at the byron nelson john hawkins of golf world magazine wrangled a lunchtime interview with woods in the player dining area they had just settled into a corner booth when mickelson padded up carrying an overstuffed tray of food Mind if I join you guys, says Hawkins. I look at Tiger. He looks at me and his expression is like, are you fucking kidding me? Oblivious, Mickelson sat down and turned off Hawkins' tape recorder and proceeded to dominate the conversation. He is an extrovert while Woods is an introvert and a lot of their awkwardness with each flowed from there. The Lakers and underdog Nets had just secured their spots in the NBA finals. So Mickelson, while wolfing down his lunch, said to Woods, I know you love the Lakers, so I'll take the Nets for a hundred bucks. Says Hawkins, Phil gets up and leaves, and the first thing out of Tiger's mouth is, can you fucking believe that guy? It was so (laughs) obvious to both of us that Phil was willing to pay a hundred dollars just to earn a little love from Tiger. That's that's lovely. Maybe my favorite story from the book. I just it it illustrates so much their two personalities, how much Phil wants tiger to think he's cool how much tiger does not think he's cool there was a little bit of softening i think after the sex scandal for that relationship yeah but but there's still a few anecdotes about how much tiger dislikes phil uh, after that fact i i really enjoyed all the little stories like if you could have boiled this down to a cliff notes of all the little stories that was 50 pages that probably would have been enough for me again i'm making it sound like i didn't enjoy the book it went really, really fast. It's only 240 pages. I think it would make a wonderful Christmas present for any sports fan, really. Like someone who's on the fence about golf, I still think it would be a great read for them. Yeah. Maybe even better than than somebody who followed him along for his career because all that, you know, the shot-by-shot stuff you've already experienced. 
you know, and the other stuff. It, it is, yeah, I, I would recommend it for any sports fan, whether you're a, a golf nut or just a, a sports dude. Yeah. Or gal. Phil Mickelson, piece of shit, great golfer, good dude, phony. He's all of it, man. And it's all yeah. wrapped up in the book. Is there anything exactly. else you want to add on it? No, that was it. It was, it was an enjoyable read. And um, we should do book club more often. We should do book club more often. When they, when they release VJ, the unauthorized biography of cheating on the Asian tour in the 80s, yes. we'll definitely. I'd read a John Daly biography. Um, that would be fun. I, what it, I, feel like, I, I feel like we already know too much about John. I don't think there's any secrets there. Yeah, but it's still entertaining to have it all in one spot. That's true. Maybe like a Spieth. I, w- I would read a Spieth. Mm. Yes, yeah, Spieth would have to be an autobiography because that guy is so insane. Like it would be ten times more entertaining if he was just like recapping everything going on in his head. <laughs> uh, All right, Joe. Yeah, that was fun. Everybody, we appreciate you hanging with us, even if you didn't read the book. And please check it out. It's a good book. Go to Piper.golf. Use that promo code Turn Ten at checkout. Nick and I are plunging ahead as we get towards the fall. Are the leaves changing out there yet, Nick? Not yet. Not yet. Okay. Nick has to go. Nick, (laughs) we'll talk to you soon, buddy. All right. Take care, Joe. Thanks. I'm Lacey Evans. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time at The Turn. drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.